And there you go, being nice again. <clears throat> and, there's and I've got to reciprocate. <laughs> Man, I enjoyed it yesterday so much. Thank you for your encouragement and for being here. I did notice that we began about three minutes early this morning. And I noticed that uh, I'm up here exactly four minutes earlier than the program says I'm supposed to be. And I have 50 minutes to speak. So I have 54 minutes to speak, which can only mean one thing. <laughs> can only mean one thing. It means that Stephen has told Tony how long I normally preach. So <clears throat> uh, back home they call me Pharaoh because I won't let God's people go. So, uh, and uh, my, my record was uh, what? 82 minutes was my record at Spring Meadows. So. So be here tomorrow morning, bright and early. <laughs> oh, me. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of warned you. Hey, there's the sound. All right. So, John, you, uh, you said something that was not true. You said there were two things different. One, you, you believe the words, and two, you smile. Well, I can guarantee you I believe the words, and I guarantee you I smile, but our singing is still different. <laughs> I mean, I, I sing 10 or best, 10 or 12 miles away from everybody else. And uh, our second best, I sing solo. Uh, solo, you can't hear me. Uh, you've heard all that, haven't you? So, but um, when, when I first started preaching, uh, Brother Randall, when I first started preaching, uh, my preaching was to deaf people. Uh, I preached to deaf congregation in Birmingham, Alabama. And, you know, preachers need stories to tell. Uh, so the second time I ever preached, I was preaching. If you've got a Bible open to Hebrews, I was actually preaching from Hebrews. And my breathing was not right while I didn't know how to speak and all that. And I fainted. Yeah. I fell asleep in my own sermon. That's how bad it was. <laughs> And uh, but I, I used to tell the story because you need a story to tell that after the translator caught up with me that she fainted as well to you know because she had to do exactly what I was doing and so I was I was just getting started and I was in college freshman at Fried Hardeman and doing a summer internship and I was asked to speak at a church in Franklin, Georgia little church, little small church. They met in a mobile home. They converted into a church building. And uh, Melanie and I were not yet dating, but I was kind of hoping that she would date me. And I invited her to go to church with me that Sunday. So she went, she made the drive with me over to, uh, to Franklin, Georgia, outside of uh, Noonan, Georgia, where uh, Alan Jackson's from and where Chick-fil-A began, you know. So it's kind of a neat little area over there. And so, so we we get to uh, get to the church building, and we're the first people there. Well, that's not unusual for me. I like to get places early. And then uh, I noticed, I waited a few minutes, and a, an old vehicle pulled in. It was two ladies. And I thought, well, now we've got four people here. And then a few minutes later, a car turned in, and it was a, a, a lady and her son, I thought, well, we've got six people, about a seven, eight-year-old boy, little little child. And then a little later, uh, 
And I'm beginning to wonder uh, who's leading singing today. Because <laughs> I'm a horrible, I can't sing. I just, I love to sing, but I'm just awful. I'm, I'm worse than Steve is. That's bad. And uh, I mean, that's, I, I really, uh, when, and when I was in high school, I was in the high school course because the principal stood up and said, we're starting a choral group and we need, we need people. We need anybody. And so Timmy Tucker, my, one of my best friends and I, decided we'd join the course because there were some cute girls in it. And so we, we joined and we had our, our first performance in um, Centerpoint, Alabama, the Centerpoint Church of Christ on a Sunday night after their services. We performed. And while we were singing, a tornado hit the building which I believe God sent to make it clear to me that I did not need to be in that choral group, okay? I just, I'm just not very good. So, so I'm in, in Franklin, Georgia, and, and, and you know, these people, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder who's leading singing. And so finally, the last car that pulled in, it was a, a lady driving and a, her husband and two children in the back. And I thought, aha, our song leader's arrived. I'm, I'm good, you know. Imagine my disappointment when uh, she got out of the car first, went around the car, opened his door, and he got his oxygen tank out. And I thought, nope, not happening. <clears throat> so I led singing that day. You know, I, I, I was the only guy there that could lead singing, so I led singing. And, and no tornadoes. <laughs> I did the best I could. I told my little joke about fainting when I preached and all, and the interpreter fainting. I, you know, and I, I thought I did all right, you know. And... Um, Brother David, after it's all over, um, that one of the little ladies was walking out, and she said to me, Brother Dale, you're going to be a good preacher someday. Now, I'll tell you, here's what happens for preachers, okay? If you ever preach, and several of you are preachers, people tell you when you're young, someday you're going to be a good preacher. And when you get old like I am, they say, I bet, I bet you were a good preacher, and there's that period in between. And for me, it was three weeks. So <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. But uh, I, so a lady walked out, and she said, you're going to be a good preacher someday. And I, I said, thank you. And she said, uh, but that song leading thing, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, next time you have to do that, try the fainting thing. <laughs> <laughs> So just to smile and believe in the words don't necessarily help, but I still sing, and I sing out loud. Uh, it is an honor to be here. Last night we looked at a man in Hebrews chapter seven, chapter 11 by the name of Gideon. Gideon gets his name mentioned, right? Just a, just a name mentioned. It doesn't say anything about him, but Gideon gets better billing than some people. and Some may just... And others, you know. <laughs> and uh, at least he's not just one of the others. He gets his name mentioned. We, when we talked about the process that God uses to take a man from coward to champion. And, and in this session, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we're going to ask a, a, a second question. And the question we ask today is, what is the type of person that God uses? We, we talked about how God makes a person, but now we've got to ask, who? Who is it? And I love Hebrews 11. Um, I don't know if you're ever astounded by the power of the text. 
um, and what happens with it. I've struggled with verses all my life. Uh, faith is a substance. There's a word, isn't it? Substance. Uh, things hoped for. Substance of things hoped for. I hope for a Lamborghini. But no, no substance has appeared. It's a paradox. The, the substance of things hoped for. The evidence. Remember evidence? We talked about it last night, right? Evidence. $20 bill. Evidence. Right? But the text doesn't say evidence. It says evidence of things not seen. So here's the evidence. Wait a minute. The verse is designed not to trick you, but to make you think. So faith is, is different than your average thing. So I want to ask, how many of you in this room are second-generation Christians? In other words, your parents were Christians. Raise your hand good and high. Most of you, very, very good. I'm, I'm happy for you, and I'm happy for those who, who are first-generation. How many of you are are third-generation Christians? Keep them up for a minute. How many of you are fourth-generation Christians? <laughs> Being Christ and burned back there. How many are fifth-generation Christians? How many are sixth-generation Christians? Yeah, it kind of gets murky there, doesn't it? I'm a sixth-generation preacher. I want to talk to those of you who are more than second-generation Christians. The book of Hebrews was written for you. The book was written for you. You see, see what had happened was these folks had become Christians. And then the second generation came along, and they were, most of them, Hebrews, most of them were Jewish people in background. So their, their parents were Jews, spiritually and nationally. And then they become Christians, so they're still Jews nationally. Probably many of them still celebrated Passover. Uh, perhaps not in a religious way, maybe in a religious way, read Romans chapter 10, but, but perhaps not in a religious way, but some of them still had generation after generation after generation of here's how we do our holidays and our family, it's a holiday, and so they still celebrated that special day. Uh, it, it, it confused some people, that's why Romans 10 is in the Bible, actually, I think. But, but here, here we go now, they, they're, they're now physically Jews, but they're spiritually Christians. And so the kids come along. And the kids hear all the stories of Moses and God delivering their family from Egypt. I mean, it's real to them. And they hear the stories of, of Gideon, 
Gideon was their great, 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 you know, they could trace it back. I don't know, I've traced my family back to the 1500s. You, you can trace your family back. Jews are better at that than any group of people in the world except the Mormons. And, and the Mormons got most of their information from the Jews. So, I mean, they trace it back, 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 back. And, and Gideon, you know, he, he was your uncle's great, 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 great granddad, you know. So it was real to them. And they're, they're Christians. And they grew up in a home with Christian people. But, but they're still physically Jews, and they still have all this story. We, we have those stories, don't we? We're not, we're not Jewish in nationality, but the stories of the Jews belong to us too as Christians. We're God's people. Who is a Jew? Romans will say it's, it's God's Israel today. So things are getting tough. They're beginning to experience persecution. The first generation Christians, you have something neat going for you. You have a fervor that's rare to see. One of the reasons that churches need first generation Christians in them is the energy they bring. I, I do not remember the first time I went to church. I was born on a Monday. And Wednesday night I was in church, literally. <laughs> I mean, we lived in the church building practically. I bathed in the baptistry and we ate the communion bread for breakfast. I mean, not, not, I mean, but we, you know, we, we were there all the time. I don't remember. I mean, I was, I was, I was six years old the first time I went to my mom and dad and said, I, I'm ready to be baptized. My dad's a preacher. And he said, you know what he said? You know what he said, Tony? I bet you know what he said. Why? Well, what did he say? He said, what? You're too young, right? You don't understand yet. Age seven, I went back to him. Dad, I want to be baptized. You know what he said? You're too young. And this time he added something. Your brother Carrie's not even a Christian yet. So between my seventh and eighth birthday, I became an evangelist. And I baptized my brother Carrie. He, got, he was baptized during that year. My eighth birthday was on a Sunday morning, 6 a.m. I woke up, ran to my dad's, my dad's bedroom and woke him up and said, Dad, I'm eight. I want to be baptized. You know what he said? You're too young. That afternoon, I called a meeting of the elders where my dad preached. I said, I want to be baptized. My dad won't let me. <laughs> I was baptized later that day. I've partaken of the Lord's Supper now for nearly 55 years every Sunday. Stephen did a Lord's Supper devotional that he may not remember at Spring Meadows about nine years ago. And he talked about how hard it is for him to focus. It was transparent, but it was powerful. And I understand it. Because I preach every Sunday. And if we take the Lord's Supper before the sermon, it's, it's hard. Because my mind's thinking about the sermon. And I'm supposed to be thinking about the Christ. I like taking the Lord's Supper after the sermon. I just do. It's just for me. For everybody else, it's fine. I don't plan the service for me. But I like it after because I don't have that going on in my mind. You know, it's easier for me to focus. But even then, it's not easier for me to focus. I mean, I don't focus on anything well. I've, I've never been diagnosed with the... Uh, uh, 
What is it they call it? Yeah, that. <laughs> but I'm sure I got it, you know. And so when you're a second generation, when you're a seventh generation Christian, the newness of Christianity is not there. The danger is we graduate our children into the church. They reach an age and they just baptize, right? That's the danger. I mean, my, my grandson Lucas uh, is uh, 12 now. When he was four, he's got a sister named Holly. She was three. He was four. Only grandparents understand this next sentence. My daughter-in-law called my wife and said, Hey, Philip and I want to go out on a, a date. We haven't been out in a while. Would you watch the kids? And Melanie said, Well, we'll talk about it and get back with you. <laughs> now, <laughs> we were already in the car driving when the phone rang. You know, it's like, yeah, of course. We, we got to the house, and my daughter-in-law is giving my, my wife instructions on how to take care of children. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> but then she gets down on one knee in front of Lucas, and points her finger at Lucas and says, Now, Lucas, while we're gone, don't baptize your sister. <laughs> We've got a weird family... <laughs> Lucas had been baptizing all his Sesame Street characters in the bathtub. All except for Count. He didn't believe in baptism for the dead. I hadn't got that passage figured out, but apparently he did. Persecution has come. Chapter 10, I think it's verse 24, he says, you've not yet resisted to blood, which is an indication you're going to. Persecution has come, and it's going to get worse, and it is going to get worse. So they start looking back, you know, start looking back over here. To this Jewish thing. And the Jews may be slaves to the Romans. But the Romans tolerate them. And they put up with their religion. And as long as there's no insurrection, they leave them alone. As long as you pay your taxes, you're fine. But Christianity. The Jewish sect is constantly saying Christians are drinking blood and they're corrupt and their Messiah claims to be a king and they claim there's a new kingdom coming and so the Romans aren't tolerating Christians and persecution is getting rough and, and these second generation Christians who don't have the, the umph, the, the fervor of being new to Christianity that's what you bring new Christians that's why churches need new Christians they don't have that fervor Christianity has become old hat to them. They have a, a first-generation Christian doesn't have to think about focusing on the Lord's Supper. He's their all. Second-generation Christian, somebody that's sat in services and every service every Sunday morning for their whole life, 
they've tried to think about the same thing they think about every single week, it gets hard sometimes. And the fervor and newness of it, and, and these, these second generation, they're looking back and they're saying, maybe, maybe we should go back. I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier. I mean, they have a book they live by. We don't have a book. We're using their book. <laughs> they have stories. They go back generations. We have stories that go back 30 years. They, they have history. They're not being persecuted. We are. Maybe we should go back. Hebrews. God says to them through his spirit, by whoever wrote it, and we all know who wrote it. Don't we? Priscilla wrote it. Okay, just so you know. Priscilla wrote it. You know that? Priscilla wrote it. Apollos was preaching a sermon to Ephesus. Priscilla was in the audience and she wrote it by the Spirit. And then Apollos wrote chapter 13. Most people don't know that. I don't know that either. That's just what I'd like to think. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it. We like to talk about who wrote it. But, but we miss it if we spend all our time on who wrote it. It's a book that says, don't go back. And to us it says, there is nothing in this world better than Christianity. And for second, third, fourth, sixth generation Christians. The world has an appeal. We're going to talk about that later today. The world has an appeal. Don't go back. It may look good. It may feel good for a while. But don't go back. You'll regret it. Nothing compares to Christ. That's Hebrews. Now I'd like for somebody to read verse 7 of Hebrews 11. And you know the drill if you weren't here yesterday. Tell your name, the translation you're reading from, and then read the verse. Okay, um, brother NIV, hey, liberal. <laughs> they wouldn't let you in the church building in Alabama with that Bible. <laughs> I'm joking with you. Read verse seven out of a tra- uh, out of a, 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 a kind of a paraphrase. <laughs> Ben, pull up the message. You got it. I know you do. Am I right? Uh huh. See, I know. I know what's going on here. If you can find verse 7, because it's kind of, you know, the message doesn't really tell you verses, just guesses at them. It's kind of like Jesus and the apostles got in a Honda Accord and drove down the road. (laughs) I don't think that's in the text. Read it to us from the message, which is a paraphrase. 
That's yeah. That's what I said. Eugene never lets us down, does he? <laughs> By the way, preachers, if you have never read Under the Unpredictable Plant by Peterson, buy it today and read it tonight. Uh, you'll be glad you did. The Under the Unpredictable Plant. Under, under, under. I've got an accent, I know, but it's not that bad, is it? The Unpredictable Plant. Great book for ministers, and it'll be a great book for y'all as ministers. So, here's what I learned from Hebrews 11, verse 7. God chose to use Noah. And the question is, why did God choose Noah? There are plenty of talented people in Noah's day. I mean, you got uh, chapter 4, tent makers, cattlemen, Musicians, artists, craftsmen. You've got Methuselah. Chapter 6, verse 4, you've got giants. Giants. Mighty men. The, the beautiful people. The first Hollywood folks, you know. Why did God choose Noah? Imagine that you are God for just a heartbeat. Don't let that dwell in your mind too long. But imagine you're God for just a moment and you've got to choose somebody to push the reset button on mankind. Who'd you choose? Why did God choose Noah? Some good Bible student, open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. We already lost Brother John. I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> Any of you remember the song? If you do, you're old like I am. <laughs> There's an all-seeing eye watching you. Remember that song? I bet you hadn't sung it here in a while, have you? Do you remember that song? I didn't think you would. <laughs> you're too young. <laughs> Uh, you want me to sing it? <laughs> Steve and I will sing it together. <laughs> it's not in your book. I already looked. Yeah. It's an all-seeing eye watching you every day, every way, watching you, watching you. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. And I remember growing up, my mind that liked uh, dark shadows, liked uh, to be scared a little bit, envisioned a, a giant cyclops in the sky. I'm sorry, that's what I envisioned. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. The song comes from First Chronicles chapter 16 
in verse nine, Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. So someone read that verse for us, please. Okay, did you read verse 9 and 10, or was that just 9? Just 9, okay. You read 10, don't read 10. You did good. Okay, verse 9, the first part of it, God is looking searching for those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's why God chose Noah. I want to see four characteristics of the type of person that God uses. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Some of you may already be there. The story of Noah is in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And from it, we see four characteristics of the type of person that God uses. So let's start reading in verse 5. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every thought and intention of his heart was only evil continually. I get in discussion sometimes with Men, and they say things like, man, things are bad. (laughs) It's never been this bad before. And I say, read Genesis chapter (laughs) 6. It isn't that bad. Every thought and imagination of man was only evil continually. That's bad. Verse 6, and the Lord... Grieved. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Wow. God made man for a purpose. Do you know that? To be someone he could dispense his love some of you made a child right you know why you made that child so you can have someone to love now if you got girls you understand they've got boys you're not sure okay but I mean you wanted somebody that would love you and that you could love that's why God made man and God's sitting in his recliner in heaven saying wait a minute There ain't anybody down there at all. I can read every thought. I can see everything. I can know every imagination, and every one of them's evil. (sighs) If you've ever had a child go wrong, 
You get that. There ain't nothing as hard as someone you created to love who doesn't love you back and who everything they do is against everything you believe. And that's God in heaven looking down and everybody he looks at, every thought he reads, every imagination he sees, evil. I made man and Satan has won. Wow. It grieved. I would rather my two sons had never been born than for them to leave the Lord. Right? Man. That's God right there. I just wish I hadn't made them. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I'll destroy the man that I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. And he could. He could. Verse 8. There's an all-seeing eye. There's Noah. He's a good man. You know the text says that about Noah three times? He's a good man. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God said, let's just start over. I'll start with Noah. One man. Why Noah? Four things. Number one, I'm supposed to quit at 1030, right? We're just on point one. We haven't said it yet. Okay, so we got four to go. We may make another session shorter about that. Number one, Noah was available. All right, now that was pretty simple, wasn't it? Move on to point two. Noah was available. The fact is, there was only one person available that God could find. You know how many people that were living on the earth at that time? Preacher guys, how many people live on the earth at the time of Noah? I want to see what y'all have learned. You have read your, you've done your homework, Matt. Thank you. Until I was in Fiji in March, I thought there was around 10 million people. That's how dumb I am. Okay, I don't claim to be smart. And I, and 
one of my students, Fijian students, said, some people believe there are as many as 7 billion people living on the earth. There are as many people living on the earth then as they're living on the earth now. That ain't no way. I thought the guy's an idiot. <laughs> so I, I got back to my room that night and I started doing some research. I have a point. There are probably as many people living on the earth or somewhere around it as possible as many people. Billions of people probably living on the earth then. One man. Noah was available. You realize, in God's eyes, listen carefully, your availability is much more important than your ability. Your attitude is much more important than your aptitude. We use our ability as an excuse. <laughs> I can't do much. Ever hear that, preachers? You ever hear that, members? I, I can't do much. Her name is Barbara. <laughs> I met Barbara on a Sunday night at Granny White Church in Nashville. Older lady. Older lady. And... uh Monday night, my friend Ronnie and I went to visit Barbara. We visited all the people that visited our services. We'd take them some homemade banana bread, and I called, called it get a report card, ask them what they saw, and thank them for coming. Invite them back. Barbara invited us in the house. We said, no, no, we're not here to come in. She said, no, I really want you to come in. We said, no, just take the bread and we'll go. She said, I don't want to talk to you all. Can you come in? So third invitation, our rule was third invitation, you go in. So we went in the house. We sat down and Barbara, older lady, pointed her older finger at me and said to me, we're going, I'm going to start coming to church at Granny White. But I don't need a preacher. Already have a preacher. His name's Jim Bill McIntyre. And I already have a backup preacher. His name's Gary Dodd. I don't need a preacher. <clears throat> yes, ma'am. So she started coming to Granny White. She's a three time a week her Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Heavily involved. She tolerated me, I tolerated her. I didn't need her. She didn't need me, apparently. <laughs> so one of our secretaries retired. We had seven. That's the problem. You know, we had seven secretaries. One of them retired. And the elders hired her to be the new secretary to replace some of the retired, which made me think the elders wanted me to move. It's like, you know, you, you hire the preacher's worst enemy to be the secretary. It says something to you. I, I thought I need, but no. Uh, I stayed around. We worked together. Her job was not involved in my job. She was a record keeper for us in membership files. and So we, didn't, we interacted a couple of times a week, usually Monday morning. A couple of years go by, I leave Granny White. I moved down to Spring Hill to work with the Spring Meadows congregation. I've been there for a few months, and I get an email from Barbara. And Barbara says to me, Brother Dale, um, did you know that uh, Fred Montgomery is in the hospital. And I wrote her back. And I said, uh, 
I'm not Fred Montgomery's preacher anymore. <laughs> kind of like that. I kind of stay out of the business at Granny White now. I'm now down here, and I want their preacher to be the preacher there. But thank you for letting me know. Sure, went back and said, why don't you keep up with people? <laughs> I wrote her back and said, well, really, you know, I don't mind. I like knowing, but I'm, I don't stick my nose in that business. That's, that's that congregation's business. Sure, went back and said, would you like to know what's going on at Granny White? I made a foolish, a very foolish tactical mistake. I wrote her back and said, yes. Over the next seven years, she averaged sending me nine emails a day. Everything. Everything. And she wanted a response to every email. She'd write me. I wouldn't write her back. She'd write again. I wouldn't write her back. She'd write me and say, you're three behind. <laughs> I'd write her back. She started sending me, the younger guys don't probably get this fully, but she started sending me forwards, you know, those forwards that used to go around, those stupid, untrue stories that supposed to touch your heart or something, and she'd send those to me. So I wrote Barbara, I said, Barbara, I don't read those, I don't have time for that. And she wrote back and said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that, I won't send those anymore. So she started sending them to Melanie saying, would you share these with Dale? <laughs> she, was, she was good. Seven, nine a day for seven years. At some point, she got to where she couldn't drive anymore. She wrote me. said, Brother Dale, I, I can't drive anymore. I can't get out and visit the old people. I can't cook and cake, take cakes to people anymore. I can't get out of church on Sunday night or Wednesday night. She said, but I can pray. And I know you preach a lot. And if every Saturday night you'll send me a list of where you're preaching and what time you're preaching, while you're preaching, I will pray for you and those people listening to you. Huh. The problem with most of us is we say, I can't do much, and we don't do anything. Barbara said, I can't do much, but here's what I can do and I will do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God has put each one in the kingdom just as it has pleased him. God put you in the kingdom to do something. Do something. A few years went by. Postscript, Barbara died. I get an email from her niece. She had no children. Her husband had died 30 years before. He'd worked in the Pentagon. Her niece wrote me, who I'd never met, and said, I am Barbara's nearest living relative. She left very specific instructions for her funeral. That wasn't surprising at all. The funeral will be in Bourbon, Kentucky at 2 o'clock on October the 6th and you're to do the service. So I drove to Bourbon, Kentucky and I did the service and I got up and I said, today 
I'm Barbara's preacher. <laughs> Noah was available. The problem most of us is, I can't do much. I don't have much ability. You, you feel that way? I, I'm not very talented. I mean, if you think you're very talented, you probably have an ego problem, okay? <laughs> now, I'm not being ugly to you, but most of us, I'm, I'm just, I'm not real talented. Why would God use me? And so we don't do anything. Noah made himself available to God. How come God can not use me? How come I don't have any exciting experiences in my life? Why doesn't God use... Tony Campolo, another preacher I don't agree with a lot, said this, if you will make your life available to God, God will wear you out. Being available. One of my favorite quotes from my dad... It's on my wallet that I carry with me everywhere I go. It says, attempt great things for God, expect great help from God. Noah was available. There were super talented people living. But again, you remember last night? God doesn't often use superstars. Because when he finishes his work, he wants people to say, I did it, not I did it. Right? That the excellence may be of God and not of ourselves. Just get available. I told you yesterday part of the story. I'm not super talented. Speech impediment. You will actually see it in my third lesson today because any time I speak more than two times back to back, the third time I start slurring words a whole lot. It's tiredness and a speech impediment. I have a horrible vision problem. I'm supposed to be blind. I fell biology two times. The third time I took it in college, the registrar called the science teacher and said, he's a really good kid and he's already got a preaching job. Is there anything you could do to help him? Had she not, I would still be at Freed Heart of been taking biology today. Okay, I'm not of great intelligence. My first 20 years of preaching, most of the time I used other preachers' sermons not because I wanted to plagiarize because I didn't think my sermon was worth preaching why does God use me God if you'll use me I'll do it it means driving all night long to get from one place to another I'll do it I will land in Montgomery, Alabama, Monday morning at 9.15 a.m. At 9.45 or 10 o'clock, I'm supposed to be in the pulpit at Faulkner University speaking that morning. Now, honestly, when I booked the flight, I thought I was landing at 9.15 p.m. Sunday night, so it's kind of on me. I don't say that, please, this... uh, that's arrogant, don't let it be. 
But I believe God uses me because I'm willing. I'll go anywhere to anywhere. Anybody. Well, just a little church. Only got seven people. Let me come. I'm ready to preach. I would leave this church at Spring Meadows with 500 people and go preach at a church with 20 people. Why? Why not leave the Granny White Church of 400 members to go preach at a church of 40 people? I want to do something for God. Make a promise to God, guys. You give me an opportunity, I'll make the best of it. I'll be available to you. Noah was available. God doesn't need superstars. He made them. In fact, superstars' talents get in the way. I've used the verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul writes, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, or my grace is made perfect in weak my strength is made perfect in weakness. You get it? When we're weak, it makes God look strong. When we're imperfect, it shows perfection of God. Productivity is not everything. If Noah was a preacher today, he'd be fired. Only people converted was his family. We're not even sure about all of them. Preached over a hundred years, and all he could do is convert the folks in his house. Number two. Mm, we're in trouble. <laughs> Number two. The preachers all saying, "Keep going." The members all saying, "Everybody, shut up and sit down." Number two. God uses people who dare to be different. God uses people who dare to be different. Verse 9. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. One translation says, Noah was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Morally, Noah was a man of deep conviction. He dared to be different. He was not afraid to stand out. He was not afraid to stand alone. At this point in world history, as you already know, society was morally bankrupt. Verse 11 and 12, there's corruption, violence, immorality. It was a pits. Noah was not influenced by those things. In fact, in spite of living in a terrible society, Noah did not excuse the behavior. He was a just man, blameless among the people of his time, not afraid to stand alone. In America, we have a tendency to think the majority is always right. If everybody's doing it, it must be okay. A Christian get on the right side of history. Don't you see where things have gone? Times are different today. Everybody's accepting this. If it's popular, it's okay. Noah refused to go along with the majority. We said it yesterday. Write it down. God plus one always equals a majority. That's why Noah looked at work, at life. The truth of the matter is, you won't have to live right by yourself. It's not the days of Noah. But Noah really was alone. 
I mean, think about the, the criticism Noah probably received building the ark, the ridicule from his neighbors. Can you hear him whispering over the backyard fence? That Noah is a crackpot over there. I mean, see him building that boat back there? They'd see him in the grocery store picking up some eggs and milk and laundry detergent. They'd be whispering behind his back laughing at him. He is one strange fella. A hundred years he's been building that thing. He ain't very good at it, is he? And the text says they were violent, verse 12. There was probably vandalism. And then his family. How would you like to be Noah's kids? You go to school. What's your dad do? He's an ark builder. <laughs> What's an ark? Dad, that boat out in the backyard is embarrassing. Why can't you get a real job? Could you put up with being misunderstood and criticized year after year because of your convictions? Because you're doing what you know is right? Listen carefully. Conformity is the enemy of Christianity. In America, you don't have to worry about being persecuted right now. In America, nobody's going to knock on your door and bang it down for you worshiping God. But we get worried just about being different. We want comfortable Christianity. We want to blend in. We don't want to be different. We don't want to be unique because it's popular to blend in. It's kind of nice to know what everybody else is thinking. Noah was not afraid to stand alone. Everybody else is going to the dogs. And he said, I will not. I will not participate in those things. He was blameless among the people of his generations. The book of Proverbs says, The fear of man is a trap. What a great verse. That means if you worry about what people think, you're in trouble. Noah was available. He was willing to be different. What gave him the confidence to be different? We're still in verse 9. Noah walked with God. He had a relationship. He had fellowship with God. He had the strength to say, I don't care what everybody else says. I'm going to make God happy. I've got a friend in Nashville who said, this is my motto of life. Does it make God happy? Not a bad motto. Make God happy. Number three, God uses people who follow him completely. Not on their timetable, not as they wish, not in their way, not when they feel like it, but without question. Verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him to do. Chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Listen, obedience is simply another word for faith. Ever thought about the project that God gave Noah? It didn't make any sense. I mean, do you know that the Bible indicates that at the time of Noah it had never rained? The text says the earth was cooled by a mist that came up out of the earth. Um, kind of like a dew, maybe a really heavy dew in the morning. The whole atmosphere was different because it had never rained. Some scientists say that the reason dinosaurs were able to live so long and grow so large was because the layer of water that encompassed the earth that kept the harmful rays of the sun from getting through. 
In the Old Testament before the flood, people live several, several hundreds of years. I've had people try to help God out and say, those years are really months. God doesn't need any help from you. If he says there are years, there are years. If you believe the Bible, you believe the Bible. If you don't, you can choose not to believe the Bible, but I believe the Bible. I suspect man lived longer because of the same thing we just said. After that, 80, 90 years, lifetime shortened. Not only that, Noah was over 500 miles from the nearest large body of water, big enough to float a boat that large, the Mediterranean Sea. Out in the middle of the desert. But the greatest thing was how in the world was Noah going to round up all those animals? That probably seemed absurd. Only God could do that. The thing about Noah, he didn't argue. He didn't complain. He didn't explain it away. He didn't try to to justify it. He said, Lord, whatever you say, I will follow you completely. One of the real tests of your life and your availability and your usability of God is will you be completely obedient? Some of the commands don't make sense. I read a lengthy article in the New York Times a couple of years ago that talked about starter marriages. I read one in the Atlantic not too long ago that talked about how good it is that we live in a day where people can try sex before they get married to find out if they're compatible with the other person. It looked like a pretty intelligent article. The problem is God said don't. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? It might make sense to you, but it isn't to God. Treat your neighbor right. My neighbor's a jerk. Doesn't comment on that, does it? Treat your neighbor right. Uh, Love your brother. Man, if you knew my brother, love him anyway. Stay faithful to your spouse, even the world that's pulling you away from your spouse. Uh, Be baptized. It doesn't make sense. The number, you know, parents can identify with this. You tell your kids to do something, you know what they ask? They reach an age, don't they? (laughs) Why? My stock response was, I'll tell you why, but I don't have to tell you why. (laughs) That's obedience. Noah was available, Noah was different, and Noah followed God completely. Number four, coming down the home stretch now, Noah, God uses people who never give up, who never give up. Well, look at Moses, 80 years old when he starts his project. Noah had to wait longer, 120 years to build the ark. Genesis 6, 3 And God said, my spirit will not always contend with man. His days will be 120 years. God decided to destroy the world by flood, and he waited 120 years. Here's the question. If you want to be used by God, can you maintain your enthusiasm for a project that took you that long to complete? Can you imagine Miss Noah? Noah comes to work one night. 
He sits down to some beets and sauerkraut or something. And Miss Noah says, how was work today, honey? Same place, same time, same usually boring world. Surely there are days Noah hated to look at that ark. Surely Noah thought, you know, I've served 50 years, God. Give him my gold watch and let me retire. 120 years. I've done my share. No. Noah never gave up. One of the reasons why God doesn't use many people today is because we give up too soon. There are three things that cause us to give up. The first thing is problems. Problems will tempt you to give up on God's plan for your life. And listen, if you decide to live God's plan for your life, there will be problems. And every possibility, there's a problem. That's how you grow. That's how you mature. Can you imagine the problems? How do you separate the animals in the ark? You certainly don't put the bobcats next to the rabbits, the birds next to the worms. That's a problem. But guess what? That was God's problem. How do you buy food for all those animals? I mean, what do you feed a rhinoceros on an ark? No caffeine. You didn't get a Red Bull. And not everybody likes hay, but guess what? That was God's problem. If God can make the world, he can feed those animals. The biggest problem at all you ready? Sanitation. <clears throat> we have a dog now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I never wanted a dog. Again, I told Russ last night my goal is to make everybody here hate me before I'm gone. Listen very carefully to me. Your dog doesn't love you. See, I told you. I just lost about half of you. You stop feeding that dog, see how much she loves you. Find somebody else to feed him. We got a dog. You know what he does? He's a puppy. He pees on my floor. Somebody says, oh, that dog loves you. If somebody comes to my house and pees on my floor, they don't love me, okay? <laughs> and it smells bad. Imagine a hippopotamus pooping on your floor. <laughs> Over a hundred days cooped up in that one window, one door arc. The stink must have gotten really bad. What's the alternative though? Stay inside with the smell or outside and drown. Not much of an option. Uh, problems will cause you, pressures will cause you to want to give up before you accomplish your goal. Noah must have thought this. You ever thought this? This is too big for me. I talk to preachers for a living now. And any preacher who doesn't get overwhelmed at times and think the task I have to, to proclaim the whole counsel of God to the whole world to be faithful and true to God's word every time I stand up and preach, even if it's for 60 or 70 years, to not teach false doctrine, to interpret every verse in the right way when I talk, 
If you don't feel overwhelmed at times, something's wrong with you. No one must have felt overwhelmed. The pressure, the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Too much responsibility, God. I can't handle it. Pressures will cause you to want to give up. Third, people will cause you to want to give up. People will tempt you to give up. They'll disappoint you. They'll, they'll criticize you. They'll spread false things about you. They will misunderstand you. They will misinterpret your words and your actions, your intentions. They'll let you down and you'll want to give up. Noah was a man of commitment. Every day, Noah preached a sermon. He preached a sermon, the most effective kind, the sermon of his life. Give me a couple more minutes because you already know there's an epilogue in the life of Noah that sometimes I wish wasn't in the text because it kind of puts a downer on the story of Noah. The Bible says here's this man who was blameless in all his ways, a godly man, a good man who was persistent in his faith, available to God, attempted great things for God, built an ark to the salvation of the world. And the rain stopped and the land dried and Noah got off the ark and planted a vineyard and fermented the grapes. And he got drunk and he took off his clothes and he made a fool of himself. Why? The spotless record at the end of his life, he blew it. God didn't have to put that in the text. The story could have ended before, couldn't it have? The thing is, the Bible never glosses over those kinds of things. One of the reasons why I believe the Bible is a supernatural book, not written by man, because we would have left that part out of the story. But the Bible tells us the truth even when it hurts. The Bible tells us Moses led the children of Israel out of captivity, but he killed a man. It tells us David was the man after God's own heart, but he committed adultery. It's up front about it. Noah lived a perfect life when everybody else was blowing it, and then he blows it. Kind of a downer. But on the other hand, it's an encouragement to me because I blow it sometimes. I disappoint myself, and I know I disappoint God. The thesis of these lessons, all of them, is this. God uses ordinary people. If Noah had never done anything wrong in his life, we'd say he's too perfect. I could never be like Noah, but the fact is Noah was imperfect as we are. He was human. But where do we start today? Hebrews chapter 11. And he's there. And that's the kind of God I worship. The kind who, although he does not compromise on sin, is compassionate and forgiving God who says you can start over again. And I don't know in your life a divorce, an embezzlement. I, I have a friend that worshiped at a church that I preached at for several years that murdered both of his parents. And in prison, he found the Lord. And he was let out of prison. Is a faithful Christian. 
That's the God I serve. God could use you. He used Noah. God, I'm available to you. Use me. Sometimes I'm afraid, but I'll be faithful. And I'll be committed to the end. And whatever you give me, God, I'll be thankful. And I'll give it back to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Noah. Thank you that it is just as true today that you use people who are available, who dare to be different, who follow you completely, and who never give up. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. In Jesus' name, amen.